You are now Under Pressure. Under Pressure is a brief recurring podcast for busy clinicians, investigators, and trainees devoted to state-of-the-art prevention and control of blood pressure. We provide quick, lively, and accurate updates and reviews on important issues in hypertension diagnosis, management, and prognosis from our multidisciplinary team of experts. My name is Jennifer Cluett. I'm the clinical director of the BIDMC Hypertension Center at Healthcare Associates and a certified hypertension specialist. For this episode, I'm joined today by Ruth Alma Turkson Okran and Ken Muckamal, fellow members of our center. And our special guest today is Anthony Ishak, who is a clinical pharmacist in our hypertension center. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Jennifer. Thank you. So, Anthony, let's go ahead and dive right into it. Uh, Our topic today is a review of angiotensin receptor blockers and angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, which we will refer to as ARBs and ACE inhibitors, uh, probably for the duration of this podcast. Uh, Go ahead and get us started, Anthony. Thank you. So, ACEs and ARBs are frequently lumped together because they both work on the RAS cascade just at different points in the cascade. ACE inhibitors work by working on the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2, thus leads to natriuresis and reducing preload and afterload, among other things, in terms of its mechanism of action. Fortunately, there's still a small possibility of some ACE escape at low levels through other pathways, and that's where the ARBs come in. They basically work to block the effect of angiotensin at the final point, thus getting around some of the negative impacts of ACE. They are also have an advantage, and they don't lead to the byproduct of bradykinin, unlike ACE inhibitors. Now, bradykinin is a relatively harmful byproduct. This is what's frequently associated with the most common side effects that we are familiar with with ACE inhibitors, things such as the dry cough or the tickle in the throat that patients will report. This can occur in upwards of around about 20% of patients and in some demographics up to even the mid-30% frequency rate. Bradykinin is also one of the more common byproducts that leads to the more harmful and more urgent and serious complication or side effect of angioedema, which is a relatively more serious side effect and quite often can lead to excess use of medical resources such as ED visits and potentially hospitalization for it. The way that angioedema works is it can actually be increased by several risk factors that we frequently see when we're treating cardiac patients. So patients that are elderly, like over 65, if they're taking NSAIDs, women are at higher risk than men, and in certain other racial and ethnic demographics that we oftentimes would consider the use of ACEs and ARBs. And so the ARBs have the benefit of basically avoiding bradykinin accumulation, and so they don't really have the risk of angioedema or cough, and that's one of the benefits we have with ARBs. That's a great overview, Anthony. Thank you for that. I'll also note that tobacco smoking can increase the risk of angioedema, which is something that we also commonly see uh, with patients who are have hypertension or other cardiovascular risks. So, you know, one of the things that comes up a lot in clinical care is a patient who might be on an ACE inhibitor who develops this angioedema. Uh, the thought is that could we switch them directly to an ARB at that time? Should there be a washout period in between? There was this concern at, at one point about whether or not ARBs also caused angioedema. Can you walk our listeners through that thought process and how you make the transition between the two medications? Yeah, so at one point there was an association thinking that ACE inhibitors that cause angioedema, that there's that risk with ARBs. And retrospective studies and some of the allergy literature has actually shown that that was more associated with the fact that an ACE inhibitor would be stopped because of angioedema. An ARB would started almost immediately, basically that day or a week after the reaction. And then patients would have a secondary 
episode of angioedema within four to six weeks, usually within the four-week or less timeline, they would have another episode of angioedema, and then it appeared that the ARB was causing it, when in reality it was just the initial allergic reaction that occurs with ACE inhibitors, even after discontinuation, can last up to four weeks. Um, what we now know is that you would wait four to six weeks where it's a washout period, and then you would start the ARB at that point in time. Some of the studies that have occurred looking back have shown that the risk of angioedema is almost similar with an ARB as compared to beta blockers, and that it's really more tightly associated with the timeline of when a patient stopped the ACE inhibitor versus initiating another medication. Right. This is a really important point because in general, patients may need this category of medications, the ACE inhibitors or ARBs, and we certainly don't want to lose both of them from a, a side effect to one, correct? So if, let's say, you know, someone has a reaction that is, you know, let's say uh, it could be anywhere, you know, in terms of your sensitivity reaction, so not angioedema, not, let's say, the cough, um, but maybe like a rash or something like that with an ACE, would you consider um, an ARB? Would you still go through that washout period of um, like the six weeks in between? Yeah, so I think it depends on if, if it's a class-wide type of effect or not. There are frequently these other side effects that patients will have that we can actually try alternate agents. So, for example, they might have a headache with one ACE inhibitor. That doesn't mean that it'll occur with another ACE inhibitor. In general, what we know is that ARBs tend to be much safer and have a much better side effect profile as compared to ACE inhibitors. There was actually a multinational cohort study that was published in hypertension late last year that showed that basically in almost every side effect type of occurrence, ARBs occur at a much lower frequency and still have the added benefits that we look for in terms of other comorbidities and blood pressure. So if it's something like a rash with an ACE inhibitor, I think at that point, it's okay to start an ARB. Probably I would wait until their actual reaction goes away just because you don't want that association or fixation for the patient to think about it because it can be quite difficult for a provider down the line if a patient stops a medication, then you're retrospectively looking a couple of years later and you see that that timeline of, you know, visit to urgent care, medication stopped. Two days later, patient called saying rash there stopped it looks like both those agents were causing it, when in reality, it was just a matter of if there was more time for resolution, that initial side effect would have gone away and the ARB was probably not associated with it. So probably from kind of a timeline aspect, I would probably would wait for the patient to feel well again and then introduce the ARB, but I wouldn't be hesitant to switch from an ACE to an ARB when it's something like that that isn't necessarily mechanistically associated. 100% agreed with that. Uh, for the example of rashes in particular, they often get worse before they get better, even when you stop the offending agent. And so particularly for that example, you would want to wait until the rash was clearly on the downside. In terms of, um, I guess, the, the next question, what is the I guess, effectiveness in terms of ACEs and ARBs in actually decreasing um, their blood pressure, people's blood pressures? Yeah. So the most recent guidelines pretty much across the board have all the major four. And in this case, we could actually limit it to three because we're lumping ACEs and ARBs together. But when you look at calcium channel blockers, thiazide diuretics, or ACEs and ARBs as a group, all three of them lower blood pressure just as well. You know, sometimes there's a question of making sure that it's the appropriate dose. So if you're switching from one to the other, or you need a blood pressure lowering effect, choosing the right dose. So, you know, if someone's blood pressure is 20 points above their goal, 
starting with the lowest dose isn't likely to achieve that. There may be people on the outside edges of kind of like your curve where they will achieve that. But for the most part, you would need to start at a mid-level dose to achieve it. But when you're looking at the three classes, and in this case, again, I'm lumping ACEs and ARBs together, then the effectiveness is the same in terms of blood pressure lowering. Anthony, are there situations in which ACE inhibitors are favored over ARBs? Yeah. So, you know, we alluded to the part that in terms of uh, risk and side effect profile, ARBs are preferred over ACEs. And when you look at indications, both of them have the same indications in terms of CKD, CAD, diabetes, proteinuria, in terms of a benefit there. The one area to really think about is potentially in patients who have had post-pregnancy. So patients who are breastfeeding, there's actually more evidence for use of ACE inhibitors. And in this case, I really would specify enalapril, similar to how we think about nifedipine among calcium channel blockers. Enalapril has the most evidence right now for use in a patient who is postpartum and is actively breastfeeding. So enalapril would be the preferred option. ARBs don't really have studies that support them. And so we don't really use them because we don't have safety studies for them in that situation. Whereas with ACE inhibitors, enalapril does tend to have a safe profile, and particularly when we're thinking about its content in breast milk. So in breast milk, there's what's called an RID measure, which is a relative infant dose, and so it's a measure of how much of the medication is in the breast milk. And traditionally, we use 10% as a cutoff. Enalapril is about 1.1 or a little bit over 1%. So when you think about what your margin is for the threshold, it's very safe from that perspective. Now, the downside is, you know, with the frequency of dosing with enalapril, something that you may use short term, and as the patient stops breastfeeding, then potentially thinking about switching them to an ARB. So really, the only place I think about with enalapril or with ACE inhibitors would be in that situation where it's a patient who's postpartum and is breastfeeding and has an indication for an ACE or an ARB, such as the case that I'm thinking about is a patient with diabetes or with renal disease. And so they have microalbumin and they're already presenting with renal complications of hypertension. Anthony, now that we've heard a little bit about the um, relative advantages or disadvantages of ARBs over other, other classes or over ACE inhibitors, I'd love to know a little bit more about the actual ARBs themselves. Um, how do you think about choosing a drug from within this class? What might drive the choice of one over another? Yeah. So at this point, you know, we've thought about it where we're choosing a medication based on the indication or their comorbidity. And now we're trying to think about a specific agent within that class. So with ARBs, then there's seven that are approved. And really, this is a case where we start to really kind of look at some of the nuances with it. And so for the most part, one of the benefits of using Losartan is the fact that it actually has a uric-suric effect. And so it lowers uric acid. And so it would be beneficial in patients with gout or hyperuricemia. And it, actually, its uric acid lowering effect depends on the baseline of uric acid. So it could provide a benefit of up to about a 20, potentially even 25% uric acid lowering effect. And that happens more if their uric acid is higher. So in this case, thinking about someone whose uric acid is maybe seven, eight, nine, you might see a more drastic decrease of uric acid. So in, in the case of someone with gout or hyperuricemia, I would think about Losartan. The one drawback with Losartan is it is relatively short-acting in some patients. It can last anywhere from 12 to 18 hours. There are some patients where there's a 24-hour duration. So we frequently would have to use it BID or twice daily in order to get the blood pressure lowering effect, which can be a drawback if that's the only medication 
that's dosed more than once a day and thinking about adherence issues. Another medication that has a fine role in hypertension and thinking about other comorbidities is candesartan with migraines. Uh, I specify migraines because it doesn't have the same benefit in headaches in general. It actually is on two different guidelines as an option. So the American Association of Neurologists have it as a class C option for migraine prevention. So although the benefit isn't as strong as other classes, when you think about it as a hypertension agent, this is actually one of the niches it can be used. Candesartan is also short-acting, and so sometimes we have to think about twice-daily dosing of that, but it's been shown to decrease the frequency of migraines, and it's also on the list for the Canadian Headache Society as an option to be used, and it compares favorably with propanolol among other agents. So those are two when I think about actual like other indications. There are other scenarios where I think about other options. So for example, Valsartan comes combined with amlodipine as a generic combination product. And if you recall from some of our previous discussions about thiazides, that the ideal agent isn't always produced in combination with other agents. And that could sometimes lead to medications that don't have the ideal agents. And here I'm thinking about losartan combined with hydrochlorothiazide. Well, valsartan comes combined with amlodipine. So you have two agents that could almost be considered quote unquote best in class, combined, give good 24-hour coverage and come combined as a generic combination. Now, there's still some cost issue if a patient is cash paying, but for the most part, for most insurances and patients with Medicare, this agent would be covered and comes at various dosing schemes to allow potential use even as an initial combination when it's a patient with class 2 hypertension and you're thinking about starting two medications. So in that case, I do think about Valsartan, and it also has 24-hour coverage. The other situation I think about a different ARB is Herbisartan. Oftentimes, I will think about it because it comes as a relatively cheap cash price medication at a lot of the grocery store low-dollar lists such as Walmart or Costco. So if you're thinking about a patient who is in a situation where they have a high deductible, well, Herbisartan comes at a relatively low cost of under $30 for a three-month supply, and it has very strong evidence for renal protective benefit. And some of the major landmark studies that have been used for ARBs and renal complications involved Herbisartan. Then the other agent I just want to briefly mention is Olmosartan. There have been some studies that show that Olmosartan has a pretty potent blood pressure lowering effect. But when you drill down and you look at it compared to an ideal like Valsartan, it's very similar. When you compare it towards shorter acting agents like Losartan, there's a much greater benefit with Olmosartan. But if you're thinking about using a best in class like a Valsartan, then the benefit is relatively minimal thinking about Olmosartan versus Valsartan. The other issue that we think about with Olmosartan is something that's relatively rare, and that's a sprue-like enteropathy, which again is very rare, but when you're thinking about using one of the seven agents and little things can make the difference, in this case, I again will still err towards Valsartan because of its coverage in terms of duration of action with very minimal, if any, concern of a side effect that could potentially lead to a workup and discontinuation of medication and potential uh, exhausting of like medical resources. Agree. That's an unusual side effect, but certainly one we'd like to try to avoid if possible. One of the other things I wanted to ask you to walk us through, Anthony, is this incidence of a change in renal function after starting one of these medications, specifically a bump in the creatinine. 
how you monitor for that, you know, at what interval, at what frequency, and and what will you tolerate in terms of a creatinine increase after starting one of these medications? Yeah, so when you initially start an ACE or an ARB, you want to monitor the CHEM-6, particularly looking at potassium and serum creatinine, usually within a couple of weeks, maybe, maybe up to four weeks, depending on the patient's clinical stability, if they have renal disease, their age, their other medications that they're on. So we typically would monitor when you start a medication, and then when you make a dose change, about every two to four weeks. When they're more stable, then you could go out to about every six months or possibly even annually if they don't have other conditions where you're worried about their renal status. As far as the serum creatinine bump, that typically happens when you first initiate, but also when you make a dose increase, you can see that occur. And I think having a threshold for about 20, maybe 30% is okay. Anything greater than that, that's when I would potentially stop the medication or reduce it. If it's within the 20, 30% or less, then I would typically repeat it a week or two later to see if it's stabilized or improved. Um, some of that bump will resolve over the next few weeks. But usually when you're repeating it that initial time, I would also strongly educate the patient on some of the other things that can impact their serum creatinine. So thinking in this scenario about dehydration, a lot of times the natural association for a patient is when we say, we need you to come back for a lab. In their head, that means I should be fasting. And they come for a first in the morning blood test. And that means they've gone somewhere around 12 to 18 hours without eating or hydrating. So the serum creatinine could actually be more a reflection of them having been dehydrated versus the actual medication having an effect. Or it could help to minimize the effect of the medication by making sure they're hydrated for that lab. And so I will usually ask them to come late in the morning, make sure they've had breakfast, had a cup of water, coffee, you know, had quite a bit in, in terms of fluid intake, and then repeat it. Super. Thanks. Ken or Ruthama, any other questions for Anthony about ARBs or ACE inhibitors? So if you have a patient, um, it seems like, you know, um, the ARBs have a lot more advantage over the ACEs in terms of, you know, um, starting in terms of, I guess, a benefit profile. Um, and so um, are you seeing that um, people uh, are starting more uh, with the ARBs as opposed to the ACEs? And is there going to be a time where, you know, ARBs are going to be recommended over the ACEs? It's a great question. Uh, I'll take a stab at it first, and Anthony let you uh, bring us home. But certainly over the past two years during the time of COVID, I have been really reluctant to prescribe anything that might be likely to give a patient a cough just because of the downstream impact of worrying if they might have been exposed or had it, getting tested, quarantining, etc. So certainly in this current climate, I, I don't think I have started a patient on an ACE inhibitor since uh, March of 2020. Um, but there's other reasons, I think, from a pharmacologic standpoint that Anthony might be able to walk us through about the answer to your question. Yes, I think there's already a trend towards using ARBs over ACE inhibitors, much as Jen alluded to short term with thinking about cough. But in general, when you have a side effect profile that could occur 20%, and you think about the wide frequency of hypertension in our country, that's quite a few patients that we could be seeing daily calling in with either a side effect or ha being non-adherent with a medication because of a side effect that not only interferes with their life, but members of their household, right? A cough sometimes can be tolerable to a patient because of the fact that they're experiencing the benefit of the blood pressure being lowered. But to the spouse or the other person in the house who has to hear the cough and the Throat clearing, that could oftentimes be a reason for a patient discontinuing it. So we do see that 
over the last few years, ARBs are actually being used preferentially to ACE inhibitors, not only because of the multinational cohort study that I mentioned, but there are guidelines now that have put them equivalent. And in fact, in Europe, they favor ARBs over ACE inhibitors. And each month, it seemingly feels like there are more studies and more opinion papers coming out that we should be considering ARBs over ACE inhibitors. I, much like Jen, changed the way I consider ARBs and ACE inhibitors in the last few years, particularly when they became generic. Then I really started to lean on ARBs more just because of the fact that one, a dry cough is a frequent side effect that's a nuisance to patients. But two, the other side effect that happens, although it's rare, can be quite traumatizing and scary for patients and quite costly to the medical system, and that's angioedema. So even though that occurs at a very low risk in most patients, the patients that are at higher risk are the patients that we will tend to see more for hypertension. And so I do err on using ARBs over ACE inhibitors, and I think that moment is actually happening much more frequently now, particularly with some of the guidelines and these broader studies that have incorporated larger populations showing a benefit. Now, there are some providers who still prefer ACE inhibitors because most of the hard outcome studies occurred with ACE inhibitors, whereas most of the studies that show a benefit for ARBs have been retrospective analysis or claims data. However, again, I think when you look at the real-world evidence for how ARBs are doing, that I think the time is today to start using ARBs over ACE inhibitors, and the second best time is to start tomorrow, and the third best time is the day after. Anthony, uh, that was a super review of ACE inhibitors and ARBs in the clinical setting for treatment of hypertension. As we close this podcast episode, is there any final pearl or word of wisdom you'd like to leave our listeners with about ARBs? Yeah, so I usually think of ARBs in patients with hypertension whose potassium is kind of at the lower end of the range and they don't have hyperaldosteronism. So they're a relatively good option for patients with lower K who need a hypertensive agent. And they're very well tolerated when you're worried about the potential risk of adherence issues and a patient being able to tolerate an initial agent. So I would value ARBs pretty highly when you think about them with calcium channel blockers and thiazides. And I would favor ARBs over ACE inhibitors in general. It's a great point, Anthony. Sometimes that uh, potassium raising impact can allow you to sneak in a thiazide diuretic as a second agent also. Thanks for listening to another edition of Under Pressure, the brief recurring podcast devoted to state-of-the-art prevention and control of blood pressure. For Anthony Ishak, Ken Muckamal, and Ruth Alma Turkson-Okran, I'm Jennifer Cluett, and you've been Under Pressure. Mm-hmm.